When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, you should check out the full finance journey at realvision.com slash rvpod to get the full view of what Real Vision is all about. A video on-demand platform you can watch anywhere. Our members get daily videos and analysis, plus access to more than 3,000 videos for beginners and experienced investors alike, and live events online. You'll join the most thoughtful community in finance. More than 300,000 people who trust Real Vision to be the anchor to truth in the financial world. To get started, visit realvision.com slash rvpod. Use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for your first year. Enjoy the show. Is there anywhere to hide from the bear market route? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing with us today to discuss the outlook for stocks, bonds, and where investors might be able to find some safety in these volatile times is Darius Dale, founder of 42 Macro. Hey there, Darius. Howdy, Maggie. How are you? I'm doing well. So some interesting action today. We saw U.S. equity markets try to stabilize after Tuesday's big sell-off, but it was choppy, looked like things were going south. But in the end, um, the Dow just managing to get in the green, but the S&P and NASDAQ, especially the NASDAQ, posting okay-looking gains, but it seems like it's fragile. Where is market psychology right now? I think market psychology is, is sort of revisiting back to the place where it was, let's call it mid-Q2. Um, it's trying to reassess the outlook for the liquidity function, particularly the net liquidity function. Um, and in my opinion, in our opinion, 42 macro is that that definitely got worse with uh, yesterday's CPI print. So so what, what do you what do you mean by that for people who may not sort of track liquidity? So are people are they risk averse right now? Are they, you know, or, or or is this a feeling that, okay, maybe we saw that. I mean, you know, we had some pretty good volume, down volume yesterday, although the VIX kind of didn't really fall apart. But then, you know, some people looked at some of those number losses and were like, oh, okay, maybe that was it. In fact, um, Justin in the chat, hi, Justin, is saying, okay, so is peak fear priced in after what we saw in CPI yesterday? It what could be, sense? I mean, yeah, so uh, we would argue no, um, but just in terms of trying to understand or, or at least put some numbers around, you know, where is where's positioning, where sentiment right now. One of the things we track uh, within the context of our global macro risk matrix, which looks at, um, you know, the volatility, just the momentum signals across 42 different asset markets. And that sort of the overall total amount of signal, irrespective of the directionality, and that it's been in the sort of first or second percentile really all throughout the summer. Um, and that's indicative. Usually those um, those low readings in that in that model tend to be associated with periods of chop, tend to be associated with periods if you observe it through other metrics like CFTC data or options market positioning with just generally low levels of gross and uh, uh, notional exposure across the buy side. People don't know what to do and they're not comfortable taking risks, either duration risk, credit risk, 
or liquidity risk in their portfolios. And we can observe that obviously with over $2 trillion of excess liquidity in the, in the Fred's reverse repo facility. Uh, it's our estimation that that you know, excess liquidity could very well uh, capitalize a sort of a re-leveraging process across the buy side. Uh, and I specifically mean the buy side because retail hasn't sold a dime yet, um, at least according to our analysis. Um, but it's unlikely to happen again if we don't get the economic signals we need to see as investors to give us confidence to put the, to, to put that money to work and take those those three different risks. Yeah. And I think I guess that's what happened yesterday because we had been looking for inflation to start to moderate, right? So, you know, the the miss on the estimate wasn't, it wasn't that it was that large, but people just expected this to start coming down a little bit more rapidly. Huge debate on what that deceleration looks like. But the fact that we didn't seem to get any seemed to catch everybody, you know, off foot. Where are we with the inflation situation? You know, what do you expect to, to see happening here uh, in the coming months? Yeah, so that that's a great place. Uh, so uh, I sent you guys some charts, and I think it's important to sort of walk through a couple of them. Uh, first, uh, slide seventy-two, uh, where we show the kind of the the dynamics across headline CPI. So one thing we know as investors is that obviously, just pull up a chart of gasoline or even this morning's PPI report. We know that you know sort of the tradable goods component of of inflation, particularly energy, um, is really creating disinflation. And we're seeing that if you look at headline CPI on this chart, the first uh, cluster of bars, you know, we really have a pretty significant deceleration on a three month annualized basis to 5.7%. And that's obviously largely being driven by energy, which is the far right cluster of bars there at minus 10% on a three month annualized basis. But then the issue is, you know, again, because we, we this is something we talked about last week, which is the whole world knows we're heading into disinflation, uh, you know, extended period of disinflation. It's bullish for the markets if that period of disinflation is characterized by what we've been saying at 42 Macro, which is an accelerated and autocorrelated breakdown of inflation, which implies most of the inflation we're all experiencing was, was, was transitory. However, there was the bear case, which is sticky and stochastic, i.e. it's not all you know, supply chain disruption driven. There is a lot of you know, pent up inflation momentum in the economy associated with consumers having $5 trillion in banking accounts or if you look at you know the incremental fiscal stimulus we're getting not just in the U.S. but in Europe as well, and so slide seventy three kind of speaks to um, some of that 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 latter point, uh, the sticky and stochastic part, you know, because we saw a pretty obviously pretty sizable acceleration in core inflation. Um, you know, slide seventy three just shows core CPI, core goods CPI, core services CPI, shelter CPI, and then services CPI less rent of shelter. And as you can see, we're tracking it somewhere between six and seven and a half percent on a three-month annualized rate of change basis for all of those uh, indicators. And that's, you know, that's very indicative of, hey, hey, look, this economy is still running very hot from a labor market perspective. It still has a lot of excess cash, excess liquidity in the RRP, excess cash in consumer banking accounts. And ultimately that, you know, massive expansion of M2 that we experienced throughout 2020 and 2021 is now showing up on a, in, on a lag basis in the form of, of, of sticky inflation. Yeah. So, and to that point, and this is, I think this is time horizon matters here, right? Be, and and yeah. that's, I, I see a lot of people in the chat trying to figure out, um, okay, well, what is that? And what, what about somebody who said this last week? And if you are, if you have a long-term picture, then you're looking at that sort of long-term trend of inflation. If you're more short-term and you're trying to find when that sort of 
flip happens, when you know the switch goes from being all of these things like energy that have been influencing it, uh, that's kind of where the the differences seem to be, I think. And so, you know, some headlines that jumped out because there have been there's a lot of evidence already we're seeing housing. I mean, I think mortgages were down like 29% from a year ago. Okay, there's probably some moving out of the city COVID stuff on the year-on-year comparisons, but you've seen weakness in housing. And and there were all kinds of stats all over today on housing, if you looked around, about those peak prices coming down. If you look at energy, it has been moving lower. There have been baskets of stuff that's moving lower. Wages is really interesting. We've had a couple of uh, nurses on strike in Minnesota. We have big news about a rail strike that might be coming. The, the idea that unionization might be creeping back in. Those are kind of longer term pictures that do seem to bolster that sticky inflation scenario. What do we need to understand, Darius, about time lags on all this, the forward leaning indicators that tell us what's going to happen versus the sort of backward looking indicators that tell us where we've been. I think that it's really hard when you're talking about inflation and this being data dependent to find the narrative in there. Well, I think we know what the leading indicators are. I mean, it's not a secret to see inflation, you know, rip roar on a core basis. Because again, I think there's a lot of noise associated with just not only the volatility, but also the noise on, you know, Bentwit and people's interpretations of, you know, what's going on with headline inflation and even certain pockets of core, whether it be used car prices or airfare prices. But, you know, the the when you look at things, statistics like median CPI or trend mean CPI, you know, these things are bouncing to eight, nine percent, you know, the highest rates ever on a month over month annualized rate of change basis, which the reason we're or sort of analyzing the statistics in that manner is because, again, we all know there's base effects, et cetera. You know, there's a reason why inflation is high on a year over year basis. But what really matters to the market, because what matters to the Fed is are we still creating more inflation? You know, is inflation now starting to go down sequentially and will leave us in a much better place, you know, on a, on a lag basis to answer your question about the time lag? And the, rea- the reality is, you know, median CPI, sticky CPI, trim mean CPI, all these things that lop off the tails of the noise from discussion really are continuing to accelerate to new highs on, on a sequential basis. And so that is a, a telltale sign that, Again, a lot, you know, a lot of what we're experiencing from a core inflation standpoint is really just the lag of what we experienced from a fiscal expansion standpoint. And I'll leave you with this. We expanded total marketable public debt by $7 trillion since the beginning of the pandemic. And it was largely in the form of direct transfer payments to the private sector, PPP loans, et cetera, for corporations, stimmies for people. And guess what? It's now in the damn CBI statistic. Part of my French. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and it's, it does. We, you know, of, C, of CPI, <laughs> especially for anybody who spent it. It's like that's in the past. That's long gone. But not well, not in terms of the data. It's still showing up in the data. Well, consumers so, haven't spent it, by the way, because again, we're living in an economy where the average person is consuming generally less than they had prior to the pandemic. Certainly not on things like services. Businesses aren't. Um, you know, traveling as much, for instance. And so, you know, you're, you're, there's a, the amount of savings that we have just in aggregate and accumulation, you know, not relative to income when you get out of the PCE statistics, like this relative to disposable personal income. I'm talking about the aggregate level, the stock level of savings in the system is as is, is, is high as it's ever been. I mean, obviously nominally it is, but when you add up the $4.9 trillion of, of household savings, 
uh, on, on consumer balance sheets, the, the $2.1 trillion on corporate balance sheets, you're talking about over $6 trillion, $7 trillion of savings. It's, it's, it's remarkable how much money we created in this economy. And it should be no surprise to anyone paying attention to these data points to understand why we're seeing an upward thrust as late as August in these core inflation measures. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Um, a lot of people haven't had a chance to spend it yet. Guess that's not the case for Josh because he said he wants another stimmy check. Not likely to get one, Josh. But if you... <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> oh, that's true. Wait, that's With true. With this Biden administration, had... I think they might think... We just had an announcement, didn't yeah. we? Yeah. Yeah. Don't get me started um, with uh, President Biden. <laughs> uh, not, li- not likely to be a di- not not likely to be a direct check. And and Matt um, expressing the opinion of many hadn't haven't received a dime. So not everybody right. benefiting. But to Darius's larger point that there is a lot of money in various forms that got put into the economy. What is what does that mean when we're looking at the Fed now trying to deal with the fact this is still making its way into the system through the system? They're trying to get inflation under control. Jim Bianco uh, tweeted out something interesting today um, that showed the, the the sort of, you know, lack of consensus when it comes to what the Fed's going to do. Um, everybody weighing in, right? Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, Fed official, saying they got to hike 100 basis points because they haven't gone far enough. We know he's been banging the drum on that. They're behind, horribly behind the curve. Jeff Gunlack, very widely respected analyst, um, fund manager, saying 25 because they're already going too far. And then Elon Musk, of course, who says they should be cutting 25 because they've already gone too far. Um, so, you know, these are all people that are widely followed who have a handle on the economy who who can't agree. So you can understand why there's a lot of confusion. Well, let's, what do let's you unpack expect that for a second Fed? here. Let's um, unpack that for a second here. Whenever you get financial advice, including from someone like myself, you always have to consider how these people get paid, right? And so one thing we're very proud of at 42 Macro is that we don't have any conflicts of interest. You know, we're just trying to help our clients and subscribers make money. But let's go down the list. Former Treasury Secretary uh, Larry Summers, great guy, brilliant man. Uh, unfortunately, he went to Harvard. Uh, you know, he's his job is to sell newspaper articles for, you know, this media uh, partners that uh, he's with. So he's clicking headlines. Jeff Bumlax long a bunch of bonds. Of course, he doesn't want any more rate hikes. <laughs> and then and Elon Musk is levered to the gills, long Tesla slot. Of course, he doesn't want any rate hikes. He wants rate cuts and QE. So they're all so talking I'm not their sure butt. that we should be taking any of those people's word as 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 the letter of the law. One thing I, I will say this, you know, just going back into kind of what's what the market is interpreting. Um, if you throw up that chart slide, uh, slide 79, uh, where we show the the spread, the calendar spreads between D's 23 and D's 22 on um, uh, on the euro dollar futures in terms of what the markets are implying or expecting from a, a rate hike or rate cut standpoint uh, for next year. And we're somewhere around a couple of rate cuts still priced in the asset markets next year. That is very wrong when you study these core inflation moment, these core inflation statistics. Again, we are continuing to build upward momentum in these statistics as late as August. And unless the economy falls off a cliff, we have a ton of data at 42 Macro to support this. Unless the economy goes into a recession, 
we are going to be stuck at these sticky levels of core inflation across a variety of measures for a long time. And this is excluding shelter, which we all obviously know is still accelerating to the upside. So I think this is really important. Um, so is the market mispriced right now then? And, and the let's talk at and and we'll we'll separate which one we're talking about stocks then bonds because they both they've been trading differently although it looks like they've you know both been dealing out a lot of pain to people but um are is it mispriced How, do they uh, do, is it generally accepted that the Fed is going to have to do this for longer that's what you're saying right yeah I, I think that's I think that's the case and 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 right now if you look at a you know overnight index swap forwards. You know, they're pricing terminal Fed funds rate expectations somewhere around four and a quarter. I'm not here to debate or discuss whether or not that's true. Um, it's likely they get there either by December or on February 1st. That's their that's their first meeting next year. That's either here nor there in terms of the terminal level. What I think the market is missing today is the fact that we're not going to get anything that looks like stimulus next year unless we get a negative, really negative economic outcome. Right. And I, I've said this on the program all year. Markets cannot. There's no easy way out of this problem. You're not going to have your cake and eat it, too. You can't price in easing and rate cuts and also be, you know, sort of pricing in that things are going to be fine economically, you know, through the prism of you know corporate earnings, et cetera. And so from my perspective, I think both bonds and stocks are mispriced bonds from the perspective of there's not going to be any rate cuts anytime soon. So the supply demand imbalance associated with quantitative tightening and a higher issuance of, of, of coupon debt that's coming out of the treasury over the next several quarters. To me, that's gonna to continue to be the drive, what's driving the bus there. And as a function of what's probably going to be a continuation of the expansion in risk premium bonds, you're probably gonna get an expansion in risk premium stocks. Because again, I think investors slowly but surely as we get you know further into this economic deterioration, which again, by the way, it's not deteriorating that bad yet. It's been fine. The economy has been quite resilient, particularly throughout the summer months. The further we go along, I think one by one, we're going to be, you know, gathering investors, making them forcefully realize that, hey, look, a sticky core inflation problem probably ain't going anywhere anytime soon. And so we're either going to be left with a negative liquidity function for an extended period of time, which is obviously directly bad for asset markets, or we're going to have to go through the economic soup called a recession, which our math and our data suggests has very much not been priced in asset markets. Mm. So does that, you, you know, my my thought was before you said that, are we, despite what we saw today, because it seems like we said a bit choppy and fragile, are we uh, going to have to retest the lows, possibly break through the lows on the equity market if that's not priced in? Yeah. So look, it's I, I think that a retest of the lows is probably likely. What is different today than, is, than it was different than was was more bearish in June is that we are in fact closer to the end of this process. And so a lot of what wasn't known in June, what was a surprise in June, if you think about the Fed acknowledging that we probably need an economic downturn to get out of this mess, you know, that wasn't known in June and it was able to create negative convexity, surprise risk in asset markets. What mm -hmm. is now, now it's more just, this is just not going to be great. So when do we get to the, to the other side, either an inflection in the liquidity cycle, which I would argue will probably be, you know, somewhere in and around the lows, if not, you know, retest of the lows, or if we, or will we get to uh, the market officially pricing in a full recession, which will allow it to then further uh, price, in, uh, price in an inflection in the liquidity cycle. Neither of those things has happened yet. So I would argue that the path of least resistance is lower. But again, to, to, to be very clear, 
there are no major catalysts hanging over the market over the sort of very immediate term talking next you know three four five six weeks this is going to be a process where growth data is now in charge because we know inflation data is misbehaving from the core side of the core side of the equation is likely to continue misbehaving or at the bare minimum remaining sticky for an extended period of time now growth is back in the picture and right now growth is resilient we've seen pmis hang in there particularly in the u.s we've seen consumer spending hang in there in the u.s we've seen consumer confidence bounce we've seen measures of financial stress decline um you know kind of throughout the summer so as economy is resilient that's the view once the economy stops being resilient and people start anticipating something that looks like an actual recession, then that's when the markets can open up that pocket of risk. That's probably a Q4 event. What what about earnings? I mean, if we're looking at, so we started the the, the conversation saying, is there anywhere to hide? Um, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, there's been some, some real damage done in tech. Um, we know that, you know, in that kind of recessionary environment with the Fed tightening for longer, accepting that, I think that's your phase four, right? Acceptance, we've got to ex- accept that the Fed is nowhere near done. Uh, do you have to separate out sectors and equities? Can you talk about them? Can we talk about them generally? Or do we have to then start to look at, okay, what's priced in for those who've been really beaten down? Have they priced it all in? Or, you know, in this kind of environment, there's more pain to go for everybody. Yeah, I think I'm the only bear that I've heard on any podcast all year that's just flat out said, we got the earnings call wrong. Like everyone keeps pounding the table on earnings, 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 earnings. And the only way you have an earnings recession in an environment like this with such high nominal GDP is through having an actual recession. And right now, the yield curve, if you look at the 10-year, three-month, has yet to invert. So that still says an actual recession is not technically the modal outcome because that's the yield curve uh, that you need to look at um, to sort of gauge that the tens twos is pure noise. It's for financial media, no offense. Um, you know, that is a very narrow sliver of hope right there. It's, you know, it's about 20 basis points wide. And I suspect with the next rate hike or two, we could very well be inverted there. And that puts the recession clock officially on. So probably by the time we get into Q4, we will be having the recession conversation. But on earnings, going back to your original question, mm-hmm. you know, one thing that I think we all miss, us bears, because I'll speak for us all, because again, I have not heard any accountability on this front, is when you have 9% you know, nominal growth or 9% CPI or 15% PPI and ECI, Employment Cost Index, which is the broadest measure of wages, salaries, and income, uh, benefits in the in the in the in the in this aggregate national account statistics growing at six percent, then you have a spread there, and that's obviously been very beneficial for corporate operating margins. Corporate operating leverage continues to be quite positive to this day. Now that stuff will all change as you roll the clock forward two three quarters from now, when those numbers are probably you know crossing paths, where mm-hmm. ECI is probably up at six or seven percent, and inflation is crossing paths down to six seven five percent. That's when you start having the negative operating leverage. And that's, again, that's probably two, three quarters out from here. Uh, but again, I think the markets will start to discount that, among other things, in Q4. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. We have a question um, 
from SBD. If inflation stays sticky for long, then can we expect the Fed to tolerate higher employment due to recession this time and focus on CPI instead? I think they've made that pretty clear that there will be pain, right? Yeah. I mean, again, uh, we've talked about this as well on the program, which is for now, the market is still giving the Fed the benefit of the doubt, whether you look at, you know, through the lens of term premiums, you know, remaining negative, And they're effectively saying this is a Fed that's going to do what it takes to get inflation under control because rate hikes aren't the problem for the bond market. It's sticky and persistent inflation and a currency that's way too dang strong for any foreigner to want to buy our debt. That's the real issue for the bond market. And so right now, I think the Fed's resolve on trying to get inflation under control is very serious. Now, the Fed's modal outcome is not a recession. Obviously, they're not going to forecast one, but I would argue they don't even believe that one needs to take place. They see this economy with a lot of sort of excess demand, you know, going back to what we talked about with, you know, all the currency that's in the system. And they think they can sort of put a lid on that by the bare minimum trapping that currency and things like the reverse repo facility or, you know, trapping it in your mind checking account as opposed to, you know, at the mall or on an airplane mm-hmm. ticket. And if they do that, then we could take a lot of pressure off the system and allow more time for these sort of supply side dynamics to heal themselves, whether you look at the depressed uh, labor force participation rate still off 100 basis points from its pre-COVID peak. Or if you look at some of the supply chain disruptions that are still ongoing, you know, the port of Los Angeles over in China, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, the, the the good old soft landing dream, right? I mean, that is their, that is their goal. 20 basis points wide on that tens three months. It better not invert because that dream is over the second that inverts, in my opinion. Yeah. So, so does that seem possible that, that a soft landing is still in the cards? Yeah, well, I think if you study the July data and the August data prior to receiving the um, yesterday's CPI report, the soft landing was very much on the cards. If we saw uh, pretty much every major category of economic statistic improve sequentially July relative to June, and part of the reason we, we talked about this again, you know, the U.S. economy is super hyper financialized, you know, seven, roughly 70 percent of all private non-financial sector credit is, you know, in the shadow banking sector. So markets do well, the economy does well, markets do poorly, the economy does poorly. It's pretty hyper-reflexive at this point. Um, so we saw that improvement, which created the output alongside, again, something we also talk about, which was rare and, and historic declines in, in, in core inflation momentum across some of those uh, key indicators that we highlighted earlier. So there was an opportunity for Goldilocks. I just think yesterday's report sort of said, that opportunity is uh, increasingly a low probability because, again, these core inflation dynamics are proving stickier and, stica- and that disinflation process is proving more stochastic than I think the market needs it to be from a Fed tightening standpoint. The sooner yeah, we get out of Fed tightening, the more likely it is we get to a soft landing. The longer they tighten, obviously, the less likely uh, it is we get to a soft landing. And I think it's it's the latter is the more likely outcome at this point, in my opinion. It's a great point, Darius, and I think that's what was also going on with the selling yesterday, because I'd started to hear people say, you know, they don't have a great track record, but maybe, maybe it's possible. And then that number yesterday seemed to spook some some people. You mentioned the currency, and I'm glad you did. Uh, Peter Bookvar spoke with Andreas uh, on the platform about the strong dollar, but the benefits and the risks that it carries. Let's have a listen to that clip. At which point do you think the U.S. dollar will turn into an issue for the U.S. if it keeps strengthening? Well, we know it's an issue already for the Japanese and Europeans as it just intensifies this ride, this squeeze on them with this rise in energy prices since they're they're paying for this in U.S. dollars with depreciated currencies. 
and why the Japanese are turning on nine of their nuclear reactors come winter, and uh, even Germany has, has kept a few of theirs on. The, the few of theirs on. Now, in terms of, of the U.S., it's sort of a mixed bag. On one hand, in this inflationary environment, a strong U.S. dollar has helped to mitigate uh, the inflation pressures. I mean, it could be much worse if the U.S. had a weak currency. Uh, on the other hand, of course, it's a, a negative for U.S. exporters because we're less competitive, but I'm less worried about that. Uh, again, because we're a U.S., I mean, because we're a consumer-based economy and a stronger currency uh, helps the U.S. purchasing power. But it, it, it's we want a stable U.S. dollar, not a fast accelerating one, uh, because things break when that happens and you start to threaten corporate profits and you know in, in, in the aggregate on the for the multinationals. Uh, on the other side, if you're a small company, a strong dollar helps you if you're sourcing product from overseas. So there are some mixed impacts that it has. Uh, I'm more worried about what a strong dollar could have in terms of breaking markets more so than uh, the U.S. economy. And members can find that full interview on our website. Uh, dollar strength continues, Darius. Is this something you're concerned about? Uh, well, it's, again, it's not concerned about it from the perspective of what I think the the natural progression would be, which is dollar wrecking ball, global yeah. financial tightening, something breaks, banks fail, et cetera, et cetera. No, I don't think that's the issue. What I think is the issue, because again, I think what's really driving the dollar is this sort of terms of trade shock that is that is more sort of fundamental in nature and less sort of herky-jerky. Uh, but I, I would tend to agree that with Peter's uh, point that, you know, the strong dollar is, you know, largely benefiting us from the perspective of combating inflation. But on the other hand, it's actually quite a negative for asset markets, if you think about it, through the lens of sort of risk premium expansion in the in the Treasury market. You know, if you think about, you know, where does most of the demand for Treasury bonds come from, it either comes from the Fed's balance sheet or it comes from foreign investors who are recycling dollar, you know, dollar, uh, their, 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 you know, their, their, their dollar uh, pr- proceeds. And so with the dollar being as strong as it is, you know, we either need, you know, for foreign investors to want to capitalize our excessive budget deficits, they're either going to have to have a lower currency, so an ex, uh, ex ante, you know, positive FX yield or, or lower FX hedging costs, which will come along with a lower currency, or we need higher yields to justify that. Um, and so to me, it goes back to the point, which is, there is a fundamental supply and demand imbalance on the long end of the treasury curve that I think investors are starting to wake up to and realize that, hey, look, if this inflation problem is stickier and more persistent and that disinflation process is sticky and stochastic as opposed to accelerated and autocorrelated, which I think the market was hoping it would be, then who the heck needs a, a 10-year treasury bond at 3.5%? Mm. Certainly not anybody in Japan if they can't afford it from a FX conversion standpoint, certainly not you or I, if we look around and see core inflation momentum at seven and nine percent on a month over month annualized basis. Yeah, that's a and that's a problem. Um, SBD, you're welcome for taking the question. You guys are asking great ones. So keep them coming. If we can't get them today, um, you know, we'll get to them another day and make sure you hit that like button. Um, Darius, I want to ask you about crypto before we run out of time, because we've got a big merge coming. Crypto has been sort of still to 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 the you know in most cases trading in tandem with risk assets we saw what happened yesterday 
Um, are you watching that space? What are you expecting? And I should say I was at SALT, the SALT conference in New York all week, and super interesting dichotomy to see this sort of price action going on, but then so many people talking about the sort of fundamentals of that space and the merge and Solana and the, you know, the building bridges. There's so much building still going on and so much capital being put to work. So it's such an interesting dichotomy, but in terms of the price action for folks who may be holding on uh, to it in their portfolio, what are you looking at there? Yeah, so I'll start by saying just from a risk management standpoint to everyone, for the viewers, when macro is bad, micro doesn't matter. No, the market doesn't care about your long-term thesis about anything. When the macro is bad and the three things that make macro bad are inflation too dang high, growth too dang low, or liquidity being sucked out of the room from a, in terms of uh, the net liquidity function. Um, right now, all three of those things, or at least two and a half of those things are true. Growth is not too dang low, but it's certainly slowing. And so, you know, when you go back and you think about where we are in the crypto cycle, you know, I just, I, you know, we're, we're getting close, in my opinion, to finding some durable bottom in something like, let's use Bitcoin, for example, right? You know, we've seen these major Bitcoin bear markets have been three of them since the beginning of the, uh, since the beginning of the asset class. And they all pretty much culminate somewhere around 80, 85% peak to trough. You know, right now we're tracking around down 70. And so, you know, there's only about a thousand basis points to go before you hold your nose and just buy a bunch of Bitcoin. I mean, you're, you're probably not going to make money on that, you know, immediately, but you're certainly going to, you know, get a decent cost basis for whenever the next bull market starts. The problem with that view is if you did that today, you know, when you look at the local drawdown math and something we talked about this morning, you know, going from down 70% peak to trough to down 80% peak to trough isn't a 10% decline on a local basis in terms of your invested capital, your criminal invested capital, that's down 33% in, tr in price terms. So are you willing to stomach a 33% decline in Bitcoin from here because you think we're close to the lows? I'm certainly not with my own money, but you know I'm, I'm not that rich yet. Yeah. <laughs> Darius, so uh, we've got we've got to, you know, head into the acceptance phase that the Fed is going to continue to tighten. Inflation is is way too high based on its measures. Uh, a lot of that may not be fully priced into markets yet, so there may be some downside and pain ahead. Um what do you let, let's circle back with closing off on the question we asked. Um, what do you do in this environment? How do you and you made a great point right now about, you know, you're trying to pick a bottom and the difficulty and the pain that can cause with dra drawdowns. Where can you hide if you're looking for some safety and some capital preservation right now? Yeah. So this again, I always like to answer these kinds of questions through depends on who you're talking to in response. If you're an institutional investor, I think the name of the game when you're in this kind of environment where growth is slowing and the net liquidity function is negative, you generally want to be in defensive sectors and style factors. Now, I think we were all sort of, I wouldn't say lied to, or we, we sort of, we were, we were kind of trained at least for a moment there in COVID, going back to March of 2020, that, you know, mega cap tech was defensive and it, and it actually proved to be quite defensive in that moment. But that's just because that's what allowed the world to continue to function. In reality, historically speaking, that stuff has not been proven to be uh, especially defensive, you know, if you look at it through the lens of our uh, grid asset market back test. And so, you know, I think it's the old traditional rust, maybe may minus the R, um, you know, from a sector uh, perspective, style factors, obviously low beta, um, um, you know, dividend, um, um, I'm certain low variance in dividends, like all that kind of stuff, all you know, the, the hedge fund people know what I'm talking about. And then when you're talking about retail investors, like you don't need to be doing any of this, have cash, just yeah. give it a few more months, right? Like have cash, give it a few more months, you know, like just, you know, I think we've all it, it, raise your hand if you lost money trying to buy the bottom in bonds this year. And I'll raise two because I've done that twice already. 
you know, the reality is I think we keep trying to put money to work because we see these awesome opportunities relative to what we've been trained on with, you know, which is the last 10, 20 years of an investing world, but we're not in that regime anymore. Mm-hmm. We're in a regime that looks a lot more like the 70s, a lot more like the 90s or the 40s, and a lot more like the, guess what, the 2020s. And I think the reality is we just have to accept the fact that the net liquidity function is going to suck for a long time. And unfortunately, growth is probably going to suck too, because inflation is probably going to be sticky and stochastic. And so I don't really know what to tell you if you're trying to get fully invested. But my my best advice would be not not to be fully invested. But that is excellent advice. And it's something that we just didn't hear for for a decade, for a generation, right? I talked to um, uh, Aaron Stanhope yesterday, and we had a really deep dive about inflation. That'll be hitting the platform soon. And he was like, listen, our biggest, the, the, the mantra we walk in with every day is, how do we invest for the next 10 years, not the past 10 years, right? Mm. It's like, it's it's going to be different. And people dismiss that. Oh, it's different this time. It's not that. But when you're in, we're in an inflationary environment, we haven't seen that in a long time. And we've got some things going on globally. It is looking different. It may at some point be similar and you can put some of the rules into effect, but you've got to look at it with a fresh approach. And, you know, we haven't been sitting on our hands. We're all programmed to buy the dip. So just just having some discipline and checking yourself every day with that, I think, is fantastic advice from both of you. So super appreciated. Darius, always great to catch up with you. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone. Great chat. You guys are hilarious and and great questions. Um, Again, hit the like button, come back, get those questions in. We always try to get to as many as we can, but if we don't get to them today, we most certainly will another day. And Andreas is going to be back with Eric Johnson tomorrow. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. 